world, and welcome to a little bonus edition of the No Dunks podcast. I'm J.E. Skeets here in Atlanta with our super producer, J.D., mashing the buttons like he's trying to unlock a big head cheat code. And joining us on the phone, he's our special guest today. He is the author of NBA Jam from Boss Fight Books, which is a fascinating breakdown of the 90s basketball arcade game. It's Rayon Ali. Rayon, how's it going, man? It's, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've been meaning to interview you for a long time about NBA Jam, this book that you wrote. For Honestly, for months now. Um, your book was released, I think, what, late last 2019, right? Uh, October or something like that? Yeah, it was 2019, actually. Time flies. Uh, remember, we're in 2020, this horrible 2020. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, October 2019, October 22nd, 2019, to be exact. And you sent me a copy. I tore through this thing. Honestly, I, I loved every chapter, every page of it. And I told you, you know, I reached out to you on Twitter and, and thanked you for sending it first off. And then I said, I'd love to do a podcast about this. I mean, it's fascinating to me. I grew up with the arcade game. Um, there's so many great little stories within this book that you wrote. And I said, okay, we'll do this. We'll do this. And yeah, here we are. It's the summer of 2020 because I told you I wanted to reread it in all honesty, which... I did, uh, Rayon, and I gotta say, that's like the highest compliment I can give anybody. I actually read something twice. Oh my god, I'm, a, I'm one of those brutal people. I hate watching a movie for a second time. So that's how good this book is. But I want to know, how did it come about? Like, what was the impetus for you writing this thing? Well, first off, thank you so much for that incredible compliment. Just earlier today, I had a guy who said he only plays video games and doesn't read. He read my book. So that was like, <laughs> wow, oh my gosh, this is next level. So thank you. Um, yeah, where did I get the idea to do it from? Uh, so going way back, I'm actually a freelance writer. Uh, I've worked for a bunch of different places. I've been published by Wired, Spin, Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, Complex, like tons and tons of places, probably literally 40 to 50 different outlets. Um, but I've been a freelance writer for many years, mostly doing music stuff. So funny enough, I did very little video game stuff, if any video game stuff at all. So it was all music interviews, some pop, pop culture stuff, some wrestling mm -hmm. stuff. Um, anyways, in 2015, I found this publisher called Boss Fight Books. Actually, come to think of it, I probably found them a year before as a fan. But in 2015, when I found them, they had an open call for pitches. Mm -hmm. So they said, pitch us a book. Uh, the whole idea with Boss Fight is that they're individual books about individual video games. So you'll have, let's say, a Super Mario Brothers 2 book by one author, a Super Mario Brothers 3 book by a separate author, a Mega Man book by a separate author, and so forth. Right. So there's all these different books out there about these different games, and I was like, wow, I've been doing these small articles for years. I would really love to sink my teeth into something substantial. But what is a game I could pitch? Um, now, keep in mind, I'd actually pitched two music books before to a different publisher, of course. Okay. Uh, and the, both those were rejected. Um, so it happens. But at the third <laughs> one, I was like, I really want this to work. So what is a game that I know will will take? What's a game that people would really be interested in? Um, so I racked my brain and I was like, oh, obviously NBA Jam. And I mean, going back to 2015, NBA Jam was still, you know, NBA Jam's having like a little moment right now with the arcade one up coming out yep. and with some other stuff that's going on. And, you know, the NBA nostalgia or the 90s NBA nostalgia with the last dance. But back in 2015, at that point, NBA Jam was still something that was just a few years removed from that EA Sports game. So I was like, OK, it's only a few years old, but it seems like NBA Jam has gone dormant again. And the game must have had a really really dramatic rise and fall to go from making a ton of money in the 90s to not even being made. I mean, 
those games back in 2010 or 11 were the last uh, official NBA Jam versions out there, aside from this arcade one-up game. So I knew there was going to be something there. And I pitched it to them, and I went way over the top. So most pitches are probably, like let's say, eight or ten pages uh, right. for these boss fight books. I did 37 pages. So I you like, just wrote the damn book, basically. I basically wrote the book, and that's what they said to me. They said, you wrote the book, so we gave it to you. So I was like, well, this is great, sure. Um, so yeah, I spent at least two months before it was ever even anywhere near approved just researching NBA Jam. And the more I got into it, the more I found out that there was stuff I needed to report on and share. And then one thing led to another, and I was going to be like, okay, this is great. I got this NBA Jam book. This is awesome. I'll have it out in two years. And that was 2015. And then 2017 came and went, and life happened, and and finally, by October 2019, this thing was a reality. Wow. So that's kind of the, the long story short of it. But there was a lot that went on in those four years. And you said life happened. You got married and had a kid. That's the type yeah. of life we're talking about, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Got married, had a kid, moved into my first house. So just a wow. lot of stuff. And, you know, there's always those things that happen in your life that are just, you know, oh, so-and-so, you know, you got to – you got to reunite with somebody or you went to this job or left that job or so-and-so in your life uh, died, something like that. So those kinds of things happened, of course, but all along the way, I was working on this NBA Jam book quietly against the day job. So this is all like nights, you know, off hours, weekends, mornings, all kind of squeezing in stuff. Um, but it was really worth it in the end. I mean, you already read it twice. There is no greater compliment than that, honestly. <laughs> That's exactly right, man. Again, I am encouraging everybody, if you have any sort of fascination with video games or, of course, the game itself or just even basketball sort of in the 90s this is a, a really really well-researched fun read too um and yeah I, I love this book you said um you know you saw like a little opening with boss fight books and there are, i assume you know not many sports games under their umbrella it's a lot of these like you said super mario brothers and all these other fight games and stuff like that there's maybe not the sports games there but were you a fan as well of NBA Jam, or did you just see the opening there and you're like, oh, okay, that's sort of cool. Maybe I'll just do a little deep dive on that. Or were you a fan? So yeah, no, NBA Jam is definitely the first sports game book from Boss Fight Books, and I'm most definitely an NBA Jam fan. So I have a really interesting history with NBA Jam. In fact, uh, NBA Jam is what got me into 90s NBA and into the NBA overall. So oh, wow. let me take you back in time. Yeah, it's really a, a bizarre story when you think about it. So as a kid, I loved video games, but I didn't really care for sports at all. And I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. Uh, so to give you an idea of what this main sport is over there, it's cricket. Oh. So it's everything cricket, cricket, cricket this, cricket that. And people would play basketball like you'd go out to a basketball court, you'd play with your friends. But there was nothing in terms of watching professional basketball because they're all American players. Plus, it never got broadcasted over there. Right. Um, but, yeah, I was a huge video games fan as a kid. And I remember this one issue of a Superboy comic I got from my uncle. Uh, for I think it was for a birthday. Um, so on the back of the Superboy comic, I saw this ad for this game. And the ad was just so cool. I mean, there was a ball on fire. It had all these cool little team logos on there. I didn't know what it was. There was a New York Knicks logo, a Seattle Supersonics logo, a Utah Jazz logo. I'm like, what is this? This game looks awesome. Like, what is this all about? So I was probably maybe, let's just say, 10 or 11 at this point, which is to say that I got into it pretty late. And at that point, I yeah, I didn't really know anything about basketball. So the, and so NBA Jam was actually my first real introduction to basketball itself. Wow. So it, it's so funny, yeah. I would like play NBA Jam and then kind of hope that's what actual basketball yeah, is like. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I like I like to oh, then yeah. picture you watching your first NBA game, going, "This sucks. These guys aren't yeah. thirty feet in the air doing this is it. Dunks. This is it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would have probably been better off like watching like a Harlem Globetrotters game if I wanted yeah. something that's more NBA Jam. Yeah, but I remember seeing that. 
And I was so excited. I was like, wow, this looks so cool. Uh, so I was really into NBA Jam. And then I got into the NBA soon after that. I mean, what really did it for me was the Seattle Supersonics logo. Like oh. that in particular just really stuck out to me. You know, the bright uh, yellow and green colors. You know, it was just so vivid. So that you- stuck out to me. Yeah, Can you talk about the like insane popularity of this NBA Jam game? Because I know we got a lot of younger listeners, I'm sure, listening, and I, I'm guessing they know what NBA Jam is, but just like to set the scene, this thing exploded in the 90s and just made staggering amounts of money for uh, Midway, who obviously created the game. Can you just talk about that a bit? Because this, like, you say something about, like, Jurassic Park was the biggest movie of 93, which everybody knows, okay, huge, you know, millions upon millions, like nearly $350 million in the year. And NBA Jam basically tripled that in numbers, yeah. making off of quarters in a video off game. Off of quarters. Just remarkable. Yeah. So NBA Jam, classic two-on-two arcade basketball. I always looked at it as basketball distilled to the basics. You know, just rather all the highlights. You know, you want to see. Right. When you're watching basketball, you want to see amazing dunks or you want to see amazing passes. You want to see, like, just killer three-point shots, something that you haven't seen before, something that really sticks out. That's what NBA Jam is. So NBA Jam is all about two-on-two action. You've got three points or rather make three baskets you're on fire. You've got secret characters in there that will appear out of nowhere. You've got this amazing commentary of Tim Kitzrow going boom shakalaka and he's on fire and all of these amazing things that you just hear across the arcade. So when NBA Jam came out in 93, I mean that the whole world turned its eye toward that in terms of sports games because this was a whole new frontier. I mean, first NBA sports game. Before this, the NBA was very reluctant to touch anything sports related when Mm -hmm. it came to the arcade, or rather anything arcade game related. But they finally, you know, they turned a corner when it came to this. Um, And NBA Jam was just such a phenomenon. I mean, people were waiting in lines to play NBA Jam in arcades. Like, Glenn Rice was waiting in line to play NBA Jam in an arcade in Miami. Like, that's how big this was. Glenn Rice was there with everybody else waiting to play as Glenn Rice on NBA Jam. I mean, that is just such a bizarre, fascinating visual to me. I honestly, I grew up in a pretty small town in Canada, uh, Stratford, Ontario, and I remember there was an NBA Jam console, arcade console, um, machine, I guess, at uh, a 7-Eleven. I remember it. I can I can specifically remember where it was in the 7-Eleven and exactly mm-hmm. what you said. I can remember the kids lining up with their quarters in hand to you know get in to jump in and you could have the four of you go in and it's just like that would just go on for hours there in the back of the 7-eleven as they just raked in the money um because as i said like this pulled in a billion dollars nearly a billion dollars something like that a billion oh it's actually over a billion yeah i think billions on the on the conservative estimate i think i mean it's honestly probably way more than a billion probably closer to two and then of course tournament edition came out so that's totally separate from tournament edition by the way you're talking og nba jam we're talking about billion dollars billion i mean that's crazy money and arcade games i mean that's a token at a time or quarter at a time so you've got people all across the world at one point playing nba jam and then of course the home games came out so it was really such a phenomenon so i was a huge fan and then i was like i definitely want to find out how how did all this happen like where all this stuff come from yeah and then it's so sneaky too with how they made this money when you really think about it and i'm glad you painted it in the in the book like uh, the creator, Mark Turmel, like he really pushed for the four player stations right on the arcade. So you could, you know, okay, so it's two on two. It's actually two on two. There's four humans playing this, but you know, four stations with four periods of play. And you were supposed to be, you know, dropping in the quarters every period there. I think it was like either, you know, 25 cents, 50 cents. That was like, you say it, like it was learning up to like possibly $8 in like 10 minutes at a time. It was. 
It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, you calculate it out. So each NBA game would uh, NBA Jam game would be fifty cents uh, per player. So fifty. So you'd have two dollars over there, and then times four quarters, then you've got eight bucks right there. And of course, even the clock at NBA Jam is not totally accurate. You actually right. count it against actual time. It's totally way off. And they'll do things within the game, like they'll make the clock run faster at certain times, or make it run slower at certain times, to uh, you know change the tension of the game, the feel of the game. So there's so many interesting tricks that went in there but yeah i mean nba jam was all about what can we do to really get people's attention and to spend their time and their money uh on this nba game i mean they have this huge nba logo on the side they've got this beautiful nba jam marquee right there in front of you it's got the portraits of the players which you know back then was a big deal yeah. i mean nowadays it's not a big deal or whatever you know you got a, a portrait of a player there you could see them in the game but back then that was huge and nba jam did all that with some photographs that they got just a handful of photographs they got from the nba and then from some actual images that a an artist drew by hand of the players on the court. I mean, this is just how long ago this was. Like, they didn't even have reference material. They had to go through Beckett Basketball Magazine and during a, try to capture stills from a videotape in order to get somebody's <laughs> likeness, which is crazy. <laughs> you uh, you describe the creator, Mark Turmel, in the book as, uh, or I guess maybe someone else did too, but like a whimsical Willy Wonka like yes. vibe to him. And I love that description so much. You talked to him, of course, for this book. Um, what was he like? And how many times did you get a chance to, you know, you know, pick his brain about uh, creating this game? Yeah, Mark Turmel is very cool. I've talked to him 10 times for the book. And what's funny is that I have yet to actually meet him, like meet him face to face. So yeah, I've actually gotten to know him pretty well over the years. And it was, it started off, of course, you know, really uh, really small. You know, I remember calling him up and I think he was coming home from the gym. And this was maybe, so I'm over in Eastern and so it was about one o'clock his time. He's in Pacific. Or I'm sorry, one o'clock my time, 10 o'clock his time, uh, Pacific. So I was talking to him at one o'clock in the morning, trying to like get as much information as I could from this first call. And I was like, this is, you know, years ago. And I was like, okay, this guy is going to be the main character of the book. There's so much amazing stuff here. And he just, you know, rattled off the top of his head on a drive back from the gym. I know wow. there's got to be more. So he became my main character. And I got to talk to him so much to the point that I really felt like I got to know him and he got to know me, too. And um, he was really, really forthcoming with me on some of the details of the production of the game and of Midway and what his life was like before and after NBA Jam. So it was really nice to have a human person or have a human touch to it, like some kind of element over there where we can say, OK, this is our person who's there throughout this entire journey. Um, but, yeah, Mark Jamal is fascinating. I mean. You know, I remember the last call I did with him, I called him up and he was there with Sal DeVita, one of the other developers on yeah. the game, uh, another main character in the book. Yeah. And they're both playing Fortnite together at a 4th of July barbecue is what I think it was at Mark Turmel's place. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. You guys made NBA Jam. And you guys are hanging out 25 years plus later. So, um, yeah, Turmel, a fascinating character and super cool dude, really full of insights, very Willy Wonka, very kind of mischievous, always yeah. ready to have a joke. Yeah. Yeah. In talking to him 10 times, did he ever go, well, hold on, why don't I just write my own NBA Jam book? I'm right. the guy that created exactly. it. That's what, you know, that's like, maybe, you know, like, you know, you're asking him all these questions. He's probably telling you all these great stories, which he obviously did. They're all in the book. And then he, I just ever wondered if he was like, Jesus. I could just make right. more money off NBA Jam by just writing this myself. That ever came out? Exactly, exactly. He definitely, I think he figured out at some point that this is like not just like a quick, you know, I'm getting a quick buck off of this book. This is a quick project. Yeah. This is a real deal thing. So I think he probably realized that probably four or five calls in. He's like, okay, this guy really is like going into the deep end on it. Same thing happened with Tim Kitzrow. Um, but one of the most personally fulfilling moments for me while working on the book was this is like real late into the process. So I've probably done eight interviews with Tremel. So this is probably interview number nine. So at this point, I've spent years 
years learning about NBA Jam, learning about Midway Games who made NBA Jam, learning about all, all this uh, world and talking to all these other people around me mm-hmm. about NBA Jam. So I learned so much and I was having doing this phone call with Mark Turmel and he was talking to me about this restaurant that he went to uh, that's been gone for years. I'm talking decades. Like you can't even find anything about it on the internet. Like there's no Yelp entry. This is before Yelp. And it's, you know, that place has gone from one place to another, to another. Um, This is a restaurant in Chicago. Like where? Exactly. It's a restaurant across the street from Midway in Chicago. And Tramiel is telling me about this place. And he's saying that, you know, I went to go over there and I was talking to somebody over there and we went to go eat at, uh, at this restaurant. And I said, Oh, was the restaurant Diane's? And he said, how did you know that? How did you know about Diane's? Which is like all, you know, all this, these years removed from actually ever existing. But I was like, I just have learned it through osmosis of working on this book. Like, this is where guys hang out. They hang out at Diane's across the street. And I could tell you what bar they went to, how they would get towards the Burger King that they get to in the book. Like, I'd show you in Google Maps. So I really went in. And I think that moment with Diane's was when Termel like, really understood. Like, okay, wow. This guy is really doing his research on this. This guy really knows. Probably, honestly, you know, I don't say this is necessarily just brag, but I probably know more about NBA Jam in certain regards than Termel does himself because I've talked to Probably. so many other people besides him. Yeah. How, how many people did you interview for the book? Um, let's see. I don't know how many people I interviewed. I probably guessed probably 50, 55 or so. I did 68 interviews total, 68 total. Um, so I had to talk to everybody, you know, all the developers, uh, people at Acclaim, people Midway. I got to talk to Shaq, which was incredible. Uh, that was a trip. I mean, getting to talk to Shaq for the NBA Jam book while I'm at work was just bizarre. Just going into a huddle room at work, talking about NBA Jam was one of the coolest moments ever. And um, you confirmed with Shaq, correct me if I'm wrong, that he wasn't actually tra- traveling with the arcade game with yes. the magic he was like bringing like the console basically like it, the home console. yeah game console. right right and something got lost in translation so yeah for years has been out there that Shaq would take an nba jam machine on the road which is sadly not true right and i was so bummed out i was like i'm gonna be the guy that's gonna break everybody's dreams of this happening even though i wanted this as much as everybody else i'm like this is a great visual sadly not true uh, right. but on the upside though that what he really did do was he and the classic magic squad you know that early 90s magic squad of him yep. and Penny and Dennis Scott and all, um, Scott Skiles, they would all get together on the bus and talk about like, hey, you know, meet me in my room afterwards, somebody would say. Usually it was Shaq, I think. And then they would all go upstairs and they would play NBA Jam on Sega Genesis together, like ah, after nice. being on the bus all day, which is crazy. I mean, there was money exchanging hands. I'm pretty sure there was stuff being imbibed and they're all having a great time playing NBA Jam right as the game is at this peak of popularity and i mean man it just blew my mind thinking like okay in 1993-94 Shaq is on top of the world i mean this guy is just one of the hottest things going and yep. he's actively taking his time to play nba jam after spending however many hours sitting in a van or sitting in a bus so like that was just the, the impact the nba jam had but yeah glenn rice uh kenneth fareed dj jazzy jeff george clinton like i went on and on i wanted to get everybody Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, you interviewed all these people for the book. I thought one thing that's interesting, like Mark Tramiel, like you said, the star of this, the guy that created the damn game, and, and all these other people that were involved in it, I think sort of the unheralded player of this whole thing happening, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe was Midway licensing director Roger Sharp, who actually was the one to convince the NBA to, hey man, slap your logo, slap your players' uh, you know faces on this thing, and let's do this. Because up until that point, like you said, that was just something that the NBA was hesitant to do. They didn't like the idea of these arcade games because they thought it was sort of like, oh, arcade games, those are like in strip clubs and like seedy places and stuff like that. 
Absolutely, yeah. And Roger Sharp was is definitely one of the unsung heroes of NBA yeah. Jam and one of those people who I was like, I have to tell the story. Because when th- people think about a successful project, they always think about the face value things. You know, they'll think about the money the game made or, you know, what they see on the screen or even the commentator, but they won't think about the marketing aspect of something like this where there's all these different gears moving behind the scenes in order for this game to happen. Mm-hmm. And Roger Sharp was just hell-bent on making NBA Jam come true. What's weird is that, you know, back when Midway pitched the NBA on NBA Jam, they pitched it as this realistic, lifelike, two-on-two game. Of course, realistic, lifelike, not at all. But in the meantime, like, the NBA was super impressed by those amazing visuals. Um, But they didn't like the idea of being in arcades, like you said. And Roger Sharp was the guy who spent something like nine months contacting them, educating them about arcades, letting them know what Midway was doing and how top the line it was. So it was really startling to hear that, this slam dunk of a game almost didn't happen, but Roger Sharp is really one of the reasons that it happened. And I mean, I mean, it got down to the point that the NBA just really didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but Sharp told Tramel, keep working on the game, keep working on the game. It's going to wow. happen. It's going to happen. And Tramel believed him, thankfully, and kept working on the game. But, you know, there's a point where they're thinking maybe it's not going to happen after all, which is so bizarre in retrospect. But I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, you think now, you're like, of course the NBA is going to attach their name to that. As we just said, it made a billion dollars. But at the time, no, that was not the case. They had to convince them to, you know, hey, they had to convince, the NBA had to be convinced to be paid money, right? You know, a licensing sum. And then they also made, I think you said, like $100 on each cabinet sold. But someone had to convince them to, uh, you know, do that, which is mind boggling. It's just crazy, yeah. Um, so it was so cool talking to him and getting that story. And then Michelle Brown, who worked over in licensing at the NBA, was another cool get for the book. I mean, getting both sides of, of the story is what I wanted to do. So yeah. I have both the person who was at Midway trying to get the license and the person at the NBA who was going to give the license. And hearing her feedback you know, really added another level to it as well. So just trying to see as much nuance as I could because with big stories like this, you know, you always see the big faces, those main, those main players, but there's all of these amazing people behind the scenes who are so key to a game that might not necessarily get the same kind of recognition. Well, you slipped it in there. um, And I heard you on another podcast not too long ago. I believe it was the live period um, talking about this is this idea that when they were first pitching it to the NBA, the game, that it was, like you said, like more realistic. It wasn't this exaggerated reality where guys are jumping 30 feet in the air and guys are on fire and all the fun things we love about NBA Jam, but that there was like also like this weird point of view camera from the eyes mm-hmm. of the ball handler and then there was going to be instant replay. It's like, wow, I mean, good job on scrapping all of that <laughs> because I don't think this would be a legendary game if they had gone with all of those things. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. If you could take, like, let's say you take the earliest version of NBA Jam and then you compare it to the actual game that came out, totally different ideas. Mm -hmm. For example, the earliest version, like you said, it was realistic. It was lifelike. It had this cutaway perspective for the dunks, which would be cool for, like, you know, once or twice. But if you see it every time, you get sick of it. It would totally kill the flow of the action. Um, It had a coach mode. Um, It had all kinds of different stuff in there. Yeah. And... Oh, and then even, like, let's say the things that you do love, even those things necessarily didn't have to happen. Like, the dunks, that was something because Mark Trammell was playing around with the dunks in the game and somebody else in the office came by and said, how about you make the players jump, like, 10 feet tall or 10 feet higher or two or three times their height? Yeah. And, and then people, then Mark Trammell was like, I'm not sure that's such a good idea. But Jarvis was like, try it. And then Trammell's like, wow, this is, you know, this is really something. And, I mean, stuff like that, that just happened. I mean, on fire... That was inspired by a trip to Burger King. 
and which I get into a little bit in the book. Now, not necessarily by you know a Whopper, nothing flame grilled at <laughs> or flame broiled at Burger King, but it was it was all created over a trip to Burger King. So it's really cool seeing all these things that just kind of happened organically over the creation of the game. Even the commentator, he was not a, the original commentator for the game. It was actually the sound guy who was pitched. Um, but you know these things kind of change over the time period of making them, and then they grow into something else. So it was really cool to like learn about NBA Jam being something that was not the NBA Jam that we know it today. How many of the people do you know um, that worked on the game were NBA fans? Because I know Mark Turmel was, of course. I mean, he was a big Pistons fan, and he actually like there's all these little like you know coding in the game if the mm-hmm. Pistons are playing the Bulls that the Pistons are generally going to come out on top all these fun little things because he was a fan but were like a lot of the other you know developers and stuff like that like do they have any idea or like fans of basketball or they're just like I don't know I guess we'll just make this fun game yeah what's funny is that so there's only seven people that made NBA Jam seven people which just blows my mind I mean look at any top tier title today and you've got a gazillion people on there yeah yeah. In this case, you really have seven people, and then you've got some hardware people, Roger Sharp in marketing, executives, things like that, but fundamentally seven people. And out of those seven, I'd say probably three were basketball fans. Yeah. So yeah. it's funny. Yeah. I mean, some of the guys were just like, we want to make a fun arcade game. But I think in some ways that really helped because they were oh, bringing totally. a different perspective. Yeah. Of like, let's say, make it so that the guy off the street who does not care at all about the NBA or about Midway or anything like that will be able to see this game and say, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, just, I think not even half, well, you can't do half of seven like that, but, uh, yeah, three of the three members of the team, I think were basketball fans and they're the ones who came up with things like the stats. They came up with a lot of the different, uh, different little tweaks of the game that made it so lifelike. So it's pretty cool. The attributes you've talked about sort of, uh, to each player in the game was sort of like, I don't know if it was a late addition, but yeah, it wasn't there at the beginning. It's like, hold on, John Stockton shouldn't be dunking like Carl Malone or being, you know, Carl Malone shouldn't be as fast as John Stockton and stuff like that until somebody said, oh yeah, maybe we should like tweak that a little bit. Exactly. And I mean, there was also the idea that the players that were chosen for the game were pretty much just picked by Mark Turmel and I think it was the sound guy, John Hay. So Turmel and John Hay would go in and go through the newspaper at the time NBA Jam was coming out to look at the box scores and say, okay, who's good this week? Who's this person? Who's that person? And I mean, this is, of course, without instant access to information like we've got right now, where we can say, okay, let's just find the top players. Right. In this, their case, they didn't know anything about the Bucks. I'm guessing. So that's how Blue Edwards and Brad Lowhouse ended up in there, I think. They're just right. like, let's just grab some guys, you know? Um, but yeah, that's what they would do. That's just how ramshackle it was. I mean, nowadays you probably have to go through like a gazillion levels of uh, of licensing in order to get everybody approved. But yep. back then it was pretty ramshackle, and the NBA made some adjustments to what Midway sent in. But they're the ones who asked for Mike Isolino on the Mavericks. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> yeah, like it's so weird. Like you said, like it's like they were just picking up box scores and articles. So you're like, right. did Brad Lohas like go off one night, and then oh, the next yeah. day they happened to pick up the newspaper? Like, oh, better put Brad in the game on the Mavs it's like that's what it feels like right that's probably what happened I mean honestly that's got to be what happened because like why would you pick these some of these players like yeah like there's other options out there so I mean honestly I don't know what compelled them to pick some of these individual choices but it was definitely pretty ramshackle and it was way less organized than you'd think do you have a go-to NBA Jam team 
It's always got to be the Jazz. I mean, you were talking oh, about wow. the attributes thing earlier. Yeah, because the Jazz, to me, they represent NBA Jam just in its classic distilled form. Because you've got you've got a big man, you've got a small man. You've got dunks, you've got three-point shots. You've got the whole genesis of the game involved over there, too. Because, yeah, it was Stockton playing the game, or rather Stockton's uh, avatar on the screen, when somebody said, uh, somebody who was playing the game said, hey, keep the ball away from Stockton, he might steal it. Now, of course, they thought Stockton would steal it because Stockton is good at stealing in real life. But right. at that point, Stockton was not actually better than stealing than Carl Malone. They could probably both dunk the same amount. And then the Midway guys were watching this as it happened in the arcades and like, oh, we should probably make it so that Stockton and Malone have different attributes. So they were so important to that story that I really love them. Um, plus that Jazz logo. I mean, that Jazz logo is one of the first things that I love. Those headshots are just iconic to me. So in terms of the original game, definitely has to be the Jazz. T definitely has to be Sean Kemp and Gary Payton because I have a special love for them too. Nice, nice. So, yes, because that's the thing. Gary Payton not in the original uh, arcade version of NBA Jam. That's right. No Jordan, no Gary Payton. But as the story goes, GP actually ultimately wanted to be in the game. So they sent him, right? His own custom version or something like that. Exactly right. Yeah. So Jordan, Gary Payton, and then weirdly Ken Griffey Jr. all wanted to be in the game at the same time. They all knew the same people or had the same agent or management or something like that. And then somebody got in touch with Midway, I'm pretty sure from Jordan's camp, and said they wanted to be included. Somehow Gary Payton gets roped into it and Ken Griffey Jr. And that means that there's now a limited edition version of NBA Jam out there in the world in only a couple of different places confirmed that has the regular roster plus Michael Jordan, Gary Payton, and Ken Griffey Jr. as selectable characters, which is just so bizarre, but it's so cool. Um, and so Gary this Payton's is, house this in is in somebody's house in theory, like Gary Payton has it. Gary Payton's house, Gary Payton's house in California. He's got two of them in mint condition. Oh, and wow. He has yet to take any photo or video proof. He's just talked about it before. And it's like, Gary, what are you doing? Come on, man. Yeah. Help us out. We would love to see this. People would go wild to see actual actual Michael Jordan in NBA Jam. No modding, no hacking, no updating after the fact. Actual NBA Jam Michael Jordan from the early 90s. That would just be, that would be next level. So Gary has yet to show us what it all looks like. But it's out there somewhere. That's incredible. One of those should be in the, honestly, the Basketball Hall of Fame, I feel like. Right? 100%. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> That's the perfect spot for it. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that he's got them in mint condition just even makes it more tantalizing. Like, oh, you're telling me that you've got them and they just look brand new like the day that they were shipped in your house? Are you kidding me? Yeah. He's, no. he's probably never played with them. He, got, he probably, oh, probably went through not. all this trouble to get one. And he's like, eh, I just don't feel like playing. Yeah, I, don't so, have yeah. a, I don't have a quarter. Exactly. They're down there somewhere. Yeah, just might as well. Yeah. Let them let them stay over there. So, yeah, it's amazing how many people uh, of note have NBA Jam machines or used to have NBA Jam machines. So in the 90s, this is one of the stories I didn't tell in the book. Um, this is a real fun quick aside, but yep. Larry Johnson was in the Larry Johnson was in the classic NBA Jam commercial. So right. get on YouTube, look up NBA Jam commercial, and then it's a really great spot. But at the very end, for ex an extra two seconds, you can see Larry Johnson like he's doing one of his classic. I think it's like a dunk or something. And he's like he's making some kind of face or screaming. It's yeah. a really great visual. Um, and I think it's from an old NBA highlights tape. Well, anyways, the guys that acclaim who made the home version of NBA Jam, they wanted to use this to end their ad because they're like, this is such a great visual. I mean, you absolutely want to put it on there. Well, what's funny is that the way their licensing agreement with the NBA was set up is that every player had to be on the screen for the same exact amount of time. And if it went over, then there would be an extra cost. 
So everybody else was like one second or a quarter second or whatever. But Larry Johnson was very clearly on there for like two seconds, like a okay. long time. So Larry Johnson is, you know, he's out there. His likeness is tied to the NBA, but Acclaim is real worried. So Acclaim says, I mean, this is going to be a real big issue. If we're going to have to recut our ad at the last second, what are we going to do? Is he going to make some kind of financial issue out of this? So anyways, uh, Acclaim Management contacts Larry Johnson, and Larry says, it's totally fine, just as long as I can get two NBA Jam arcade machines, one for his place in North Carolina and one for his mom's house next door. And, and they were like, sure, yeah, we'll send him on over. And they saved a bunch of money, and it was, everybody was happy in the end. Larry Johnson got his arcade machines. But yeah, at one point in North Carolina, you could go to two, you find two homes next to each other with NBA Jam machines in them in 1993 <laughs> or 94, which is crazy. Do you know how much it cost to, first off, make the arcade version of the game, like the whole thing, the cabinet and everything, and then what it would cost maybe someone like, you know, that had their own arcade shop or like a 7-Eleven or something to, to buy one? Do you have it, like the details on that? Yeah, I don't have the details in terms of the cost to make the machine. Okay. I'd probably guess it's going to be somewhere, it'd probably be relatively pretty cheap when you think about it because Midway owned the factory too. They weren't shipping yeah. it someplace else. There, it was all in-house. So the developers were there. The arcade machines were there. I mean, this also adds to the mythology of NBA Jam is that it's all from the same place. Like there's nothing anyplace else. It's all that one place in Chicago. Um, but yeah, in terms of getting an NBA Jam machine of your own in the early 90s, it would probably run you about, let's say, $3,500, $4,500, give or take. Mm, wow. um, yeah, which would be, which might be a lot, but the keep in mind with this is that back in the day, there actually used to be these distributor networks. So that, what that would mean is that, let's say at your local 7-Eleven, you saw that NBA Jam. Well, yep. that NBA Jam might have been at a different 7-Eleven or at a totally different location. Right, right. And they move them around basically to see if there's demand. And obviously, if the machine keeps generating money, it'll stay there forever. But when the machine stops making money, they'll move it to a different location or hmm. send it back to the distributor. So there's a whole chain of these people who you wouldn't really see because it was kind of the administrative overhead of the arcade business. These uh, operators and distributors who would have these networks of games that they send out. So that would mean there would be like a warehouse somewhere with a gazillion arcade games in there that they would then send out as needed to whomever needed an arcade game right, right. when it was hot. It was like a middleman to, to some Exactly, extent. a middleman, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Midway would never send it over someplace directly unless it was something like Gary Payton or Michael Jordan or Special Quest. Yeah, it's not like the guy that owned the 7-Eleven in Stratford actually owned that NBA Jam game. Right, no, <laughs> Even that'd though be I, for awesome. some reason, thought that as a kid. Like, wow, this guy's cool, man. He's got hot dogs here, Slurpees, and he bought this here for the corner. This guy's awesome. Yeah. Um, no, no, he was probably giving a, a cut to the guy who was the distributor. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, I think that's more likely. Yeah, this book is not... is um. That you wrote is it is a lot more than just NBA Jam and how it came about. It is about, like you said, the rise and fall of like arcade gaming and then specifically this company in Chicago. Like I love that you say it. Like Detroit made cars, Pittsburgh made steel, and Chicago made coin op games. And it's like, yeah, like why? How did it start there? That's a great question. I think that some of this stems back to I think the mafia roots. Honestly, <laughs> is that I think that's had something to do with it. Um, anything involving machines and taking money, putting quarters in, things like that, always has kind of a shady history. So th I've been I've heard rumblings that there's actually roots in the arca Chicago's arcade business 
in its connection to the mafia. But then otherwise, I think it was because Chicago was right place, right time for a lot of things. I mean, that's where pinball was invented. That's where the first pinball games came from. And there must have been something there around that time where everybody was just congregating over there and making these amazing games. Um, yeah, I, I always wondered what it is about Chicago in particular. I mean, there's a few things that make it good. Like as in, you know, you can have easy access to lots of different, you know, lots of workers because you're right there in a, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You've got access to, you know, wood and steel to actually make the games. But as to what was Chicago's magical element, you know, my gut tells me that it's something crime related or something that you would not necessarily <laughs> expect. Um, but then, of course, at some point, somebody came by who was just so great at making uh, pinball games or some kind of coin operated games. That, that place became the, the headquarters. So. Yeah. All right, we got lots more still to discuss, but first a quick break. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that are super consumable and easy to take on the go. The specially formulated CBD products with vitamins can help out in all sorts of ways. Whether you're just chilling out on a Sunday afternoon watching TV, or relaxing with friends, or maybe you need to keep your composure and concentrate on something that really does matter to you. Either way, Sunday Scaries can be good for you. Sunday Scaries has become a leading CBD brand for millennials. Last year, Sunday Scaries CBD gummies and CBD oil won top accolades from Forbes, Men's Health, Allure, and Best Products. Sunday Scaries recently launched Cabin Scaries to promote social distancing and responsible isolation. A portion of sales will be donated to BEAP, that's the Bartender Emergency Assistance Program, to help displaced hospitality workers. Get 25% off your first order with the code NODUNKS at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com and enter code NODUNKS where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what product might be best for you. So go to sundayscaries.com and use code NODUNKS. Back to Termel. Um, you, you slipped it in there. You were talking about that idea where he came up with this plan to program the game clock to like speed up or slow down uh, throughout yeah. the game and it would affect the pace. I think that's just like a weird little brilliant thing that works so well in this game. The other thing that is just, it might be my favorite part when I think about it of NBA Jam, outside of like debating the teams and like all oh, the guys because I'm such an NBA geek, but the idea that he put in this, I think you called it rubber banding, these percentages that would keep the scores on like this sort of like seesaw affair, like close. And you say it perfectly. Team one had been scoring more than team two. Well, NBA Jam through this rubber banding would decrease team one's chances of scoring another shot and increase teams two. So you would artificially create these sort of close games that almost always ended, you know, with like almost a buzzer beater or a final shot attempt. Like that is... I think that's the brilliance of this game because you could. Pl- I've, I've played it recently with a friend, and every game we played was basically down to the final possession because of this. Basically, again, like I said, this like artificial right. rubber banding. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is all old school arcade stuff that Tremel learned, like little tricks here and there from uh, Eugene Jarvis, who was the defender creator, the creator of Defender, the creator of Robotron, 
worked on Smash TV with him, worked on NARC and Cruising USA. So there was a whole group of these midway guys that knew the arcade business and ways to exploit things and, you know, tweaks to make the game look better, move faster. I mean, the whole idea is that when you play NBA Jam, you want immediate gratification. You yeah. want stuff to happen. You also want something cool to happen. So that's why just pretty much anybody can do an amazing dunk. Like, you don't have to know NBA Jam in order to dunk an NBA Jam. You can just right. pretty much hit a button, he'll dunk. It'll look amazing. Yeah. But when it came down to those finer points, somebody... I'm sure uh, gave Tremel some advice on that. And the idea is that, yeah, we want to squeeze people for as much as they're worth and make them feel that they have to put in a quarter to play again if it gets tied, or they really have to put their back into it and try to figure out a way to win at the last minute. Um, I mean, it was just so devious and it's so brilliant. I mean, sometimes it becomes really obvious when you play NBA Jam. I'm like, okay, this is not fair. I was, I was just doing crazy good. And now I cannot make a bucket for the life of me. I mean, sometimes it gets really obvious and some people, in fact, NBA Jam's always associated with love and positivity. Like, oh, I love NBA Jam. Best game ever. Aside from the people who've been burned by that rubber banding. Like, the people who've been in a match where it's like they got screwed over for good. Like, that is too heartbreaking for them. And I think there's a group of people, a small, silent minority out there, who have not recovered from the <laughs> from the pain of Mark Tremell's rubber banding. But that was definitely a thing. Yeah, he would make it oh, that way. Oh, yeah. I've definitely had my fair share of losses by, uh, you know, a 60-foot shot at the buzzer that somebody just underhand scooped in. You're like, what the hell? This, yeah, uh, it's garbage. Yeah. yeah oh. Yeah. I had somebody just tell me the other day that they had one of their most vivid memories was going to a movie theater in the early 90s, playing NBA Jam someplace against somebody, and he scored a, a buzzer beater three-pointer with Shaq. With Shaq. <laughs> and the other guy was just totally aghast, but whereas this for the person who won, I mean, that was like the highlight of his life. He still remembers that. So, and I would too, but I mean, that's just how NBA Jam was, and I mean, that's really why we're still playing it. I mean, there's a, yeah. a past a certain point, nostalgia has its limits, you know. You love the thing the way it was, you might go back and look at it for a bit, but you're not going to spend a lot of time with it. You're not really going to dedicate all that energy or that brain power to focusing on NBA Jam if it isn't actually a good game. And this is really to the credit of Termel and his team that they made it so that we're playing it, you know, 25, 27, whatever it is years later, and it's still just such a great game because yeah. they were very careful about everything they did and they poured so much passion into it. So NBA Jam really holds up. Yeah, and it, you know what? And I'm glad you said that. It wasn't like, they, sure, okay, I'm sure with anything you create, there's a little luck to like, oh, let's try that, and it just takes off like fire. But yeah. from, from, from your reporting and what I really took from the book is like, these guys would study, like legit like study these implements in the game to see how people reacted, like to the point where like they would just like hang out at arcades and just sort of watch how people played the game, right? And what they were saying and like, oh, this screen could be sped up faster or stuff like that. I think that's the fascinating part. They were just like doing basically studies on it. Absolutely, yeah. That was a big thing that the Midway guys would do. So Midway, of course, they made Terminator 2, they made NBA Jam, they made the Mortal Kombat series. So these right. guys were arcade veterans. And what they would do is they would have they would do something special to celebrate a game's opening night on test is what it was called. That's the first night that your game's out there somewhere in public where people can play it. So everybody would get together and be someplace in a restaurant or an arcade watching people play the game for the first time, taking notes quietly, talking amongst themselves without interacting with the player themselves, which is so fascinating. I mean, yeah. it's pretty old school just sitting there literally watching people for feedback. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, but you don't have the the same immediate access to analytics and you want to get an idea of how that user experience is. So that's what they would do back in the day. Um, you know, John Tobias, who co-created Mortal Kombat, he has a really vivid memory that he wrote about. Uh, it's on his blog somewhere about how he remembers when the Bulls, I think they won 
would have been their second championship, and that's right when Mortal Kombat came out. Mm-hmm. So he, like, associates that so much with, like, his main memory of his own game being this huge hit on test was when there was Bulls Fever. So that whole NBA jam, you know, the basketball midway arcade connection, like, it was really a match made in heaven. I mean, everything was right at that time. Yeah. Oh, just even the 90s, I mean, just everything going on in the 90s with basketball, just the incredible talent, and, and like you said, Jordan's Bulls finally getting over the hump and winning their titles. You had the Dream Team, you had Inside Stuff. I mean, this is all the stuff I grew up with, like a lot of listeners I'm sure out there did. Starters Jackets and Round Ball Rock. Oh. And like, it was just like, it was cool to be an NBA fan. That's just at its core because of the players and because of the style of the game and all the stuff around it, the shoes and all the fashion and stuff like that. Definitely. So many personalities, so many amazing characters. I mean, these people are just, they really are on another level in my mind in terms of how I've made them iconic because of things like NBA Jam and because of basketball cards, just where they're always forever immortalized in slam dunks. I mean, yeah, these guys were just amazing. And the timing was so perfect with NBA Jam. Like you said, the Dream Team, that was just the right time. Think about this. Dream Team was summer 92. NBA Jam hits arcades in Chicago for the first time in December. Like, that's just crazy good. Crazy good timing. Like, yeah. the chances of that happening, like, you can't really foresee something like the Dream Team happening or the NBA being that big. But everything worked out in NBA Jam's favor, and that was one of the big reasons it had so much immediate success. One more thing about something that Mark Trammell programmed that I had a question about. You said he put in wild hairs, and that was mm-hmm. surprising game behaviors triggered under rare circumstances. Could you give me, like, an example of what that would have been, a wild hair in this game? Yeah, let's see. And Wild Hair would be, let's say you've been playing the game with your buddy and you guys have been goaltending the whole game. Yep. And it'll catch the goaltending each time. It'll say, bop, bop, goaltending, and, or whatever will happen. But Mark Trammell would program us so that one time out of however many, you would goaltend and the game wouldn't count it. So basically <laughs> like how in real life, sometimes, you know, you just get lucky. The referee misses something. Something happens somehow. Just crazy, stupid luck. Um, Tramel would do little things like that. So that was the one example I could think of. And then the other one of the more well-known things that isn't so much a wild hair, but it's kind of along those lines, is the backboard shattering. So they made it so that, yeah, if you had a certain sequence of moves you performed, and I think it was the score was a certain way or something, in the fourth period you would shatter the backboard if you dunked at a certain time. And, of course, if you're not expecting it, that is just, wow, that's incredible. You shatter the backboard. Um and so, yeah, this was another one of the things that he programmed in. So Tramiel was very big about giving people little secrets, little things that would make, make them very interested in the game and wanted to come back to it. Um, I mean, it was really the midway mentality. I mean, you go back to Mortal Kombat, those games had so many cheat codes in them and these secret fatalities and all this lore. So they were really like trying to give the player as much as they could so that they would keep spending money on the game. Oh, yeah, that alone, like just the secret characters and all the codes that you could load into this NBA Jam game. And you're right, like at the time, you got to remember, there's no there's no real Internet where we're all jumping on and sharing all of our codes that we found out and all that. And we know here's the whole list. Like it was like you heard from your buddy's cousin who came up from Ohio that if you did this and you put in these initials that you could unlock so and so. And you're like, what? No way. And like then you had to go check it out like that helped, I think, the game's popularity so much. Like, these these rumors of, like, who are the characters and what you could do in this game, even if they were fake. Like, I remember all the time people saying, like, oh, Michael Jackson's in the game and Oprah's in the game. It's like, uh, I don't think they were, unless I'm wrong. But, uh, you know, it was just, like, fun thinking they might be. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what's so great about NBA Jam is that you could still realistically believe if I told you, like right now, totally straight faced, they just found a ROM, like an old version of NBA Jam, and Arsenio Hall is in it. If I told you that, you'd be like, well, that's crazy. But you wouldn't say there's no way that can happen because it's <laughs> right. NBA Jam. Right. It can happen that Arsenio Hall just happened to be in there and nobody ever noticed. Um, yeah, they would do stuff like this. And what's funny is that Tremel would actually encourage it. So this was a story that I don't think made it to the book, but there was somebody else who called up Tremel for a code. Uh, to double check something about the cheerleaders being in the game. And Tremel would lead on this player to say, uh, maybe they're in there, maybe they're not. Now, there are no actual playable cheerleaders in this version, but Tremel would love to mess with people a little bit, love to troll people a little bit, get a rise out of them, and get them to get their imaginations flowing so that people would go to the arcade and try 50 different combinations, of course, spending money along the way, oh. trying 50 combinations to unlock people. Turbell encouraged this himself, too. And uh, there was a kind of a funny story where somebody else in the office called him out on it. He's like, why are you doing this, man? And Turbell was like, oh, my bad. But it was just like, it's just the culture of, of how they made games. They want to keep you interested. They want to keep you coming back. So they'll say, you know, maybe so-and-so is in the game. Have you tried this code? Well, maybe you're not underneath the right circumstances. Maybe oh, you need to man. do this. And it drives you crazy course, as a kid. Yeah. It would. It would. And, I mean, these guys would have their own kind of leaks in a way. Or they would, you know, they'd respond to them or say, I can't confirm neither, you know, nor deny. So it would, it would be a whole thing. But they were very, very cagey in how they did it. They knew what they were doing, you know. They knew that it was going to lead to more money and more interest but it was a smart move what is this secret tank game in nba jam i know it's a, there's a small little part in the book but even i was like oh my god i don't think i've ever even heard of that one what is the tank game tank game was one of those things i had not heard of until i researched it for the book okay. too yeah so the tank game is so you have to be playing all four players have to be uh have to have uh, coined in. So everybody has to be playing the game. And everybody has to do this position called the octopus, which is this, uh, th it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it is ridiculous, but it's, you have to do something with the controllers, like hold them down in a certain way. Like everything has to be down. You're pressing all four buttons at the same time. So if everybody is doing this very, very specific move or this very specific code, it'll go into this 3D the pseudo 3D early 90s looking tank game where you can shoot. I think you can. Yeah, you can. Sh you can shoot missiles at other tanks. So like a completely it's different game, obviously. This is not NBA Jam anymore. It just like loads this other game on the screen. Completely different game that was uh, programmed by the guy that did the dunk physics for NBA Jam or the rim physics. Okay. So the guy who's doing a lot of the underhood stuff, you know how the players were scale up and scale down depending yep. on the perspective. That's all this guy, Sean Liptak. So one day he was like, yeah, I want to kind of do a 3D game at Midway someday. Might as well use this demo over here and put it in NBA Jam as a joke. Um, and what's funny is that, you know, you have to do all this stuff over there, um, but it, you, know, you only play it for a, for a few seconds, like maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds if you're really good. Um, and then if you imagine if you play the game and you beat the game, Every player has all the power-ups unlocked. So it's like God mode in NBA Jam. So everybody's wow. turbo, everybody's this, everybody's that. So it's like NBA Jam to the max. But you have to play the tank game to do it. So it was just such like a weird little factoid. And what's funny is that uh, when LipTech originally put it in the game... The whole intention was for that somebody would see this on this night's matchup screen, they would be playing the game, and then they would all be able to do this and then, you know, play with all the power-ups. Right. But the way that he initially programmed it, it was incorrect, so that you could actually be just seeing the demo of NBA Jam without putting any money in. You do the octopus, boom, you could play the secret oh, game. Oh, so you didn't and, have to put the quarters in. Yeah. 
and Midway Brass freaked out. They were like, are you kidding me? You can play a free game? Nobody's going to make any money? And, of course, who's going to sit there and try to do this code when you've got NBA Jam? I mean, if it was another game that people didn't care about, maybe. But NBA Jam, people were playing NBA Jam. So it was much to do over nothing. But, yeah, like these boards were quickly uh, printed up and sent out to be replaced in machines and say, sorry about that. But it was like one of those things that was, you know, uh, Tempest in a teacup, definitely nothing to write home about in the end, but it was a big deal at the time. Yeah, that one was new to me. I had never heard that. That had never that rumor had never made its way, or fact had never made its way up to Stratford, Ontario, unfortunately. But that was, that's a cool one. Was there another um, like favorite little tidbit uh, that you either put in the book or didn't um, in doing your research about NBA Jam that you learned? Yeah, I'd say this is something that's more based on somebody's personal story, but that I found really startling was that so Tim Kitzrow is the iconic voice of NBA Jam. So boom shakalaka, he's on fire, he's heating up, all right. that stuff. That's all Tim Kitzrow. Really talented guy, voice actor from Chicago. Well, for the original NBA Jam, he only made something like a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks. That's it. That's it, which at the time sounded like a great deal to him when he was just an actor who's getting paid 50 bucks an hour to do this. Oh, this is awesome. But then NBA Jam goes on to be NBA Jam and make a billion dollars, and Tim gets next to nothing. Um, So then fast forward to when the game actually comes out on home consoles, and Tim has to re-record it because you have to do different clips. You can't use the arcade clips because they're too long. You have to re-record them for the home versions. So he goes to a claim, and he says, well, I made like you know $1,500 last time. I'd like $3,000 this time. And the claim is pretty much guaranteed to sell a gazillion copies. I mean, there's yeah. no way that NBA Jam won't sell minimum a million copies. And this is when it's just come out. But Acclaim still says, no, we would re- like to pay you the same rate as before, the $1,500. And Tim Kitzrow, this iconic part of the game, said, I don't know, guys. Like, I really would like – this doesn't feel right. I, then he walked away. And so for a moment there, NBA Jam almost had a totally different announcer for the home versions, which would have been really crazy because as much as, you know, you love the arcade version and I love going to arcades and all that, there's a totally different population that only knows NBA Jam as a home game. Oh, yeah. Like their only exposure is the home, you know, Super Nintendo version, Sega Genesis version. So for a minute there, it was as if he would never be in the game on the home versions because he wanted to stick to his guns on this $3,000 figure. Um, and then luckily somebody at Acclaim came to their senses and they were like, what are you doing? This is the, this is the guy. This is the NBA Jam guy. And $3,000, again, is a drop in the bucket. Um, so they thankfully got a deal worked out. And NBA Jam ended up selling 6 million copies on Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. Six million copies, not six million dollars, six million copies, and that was just the very first iteration of Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, saying nothing of TE or the Game Boy version or any of the other stuff. So that's just how popular it was. Yeah, and then later on, right, he does, uh, when they start recreating NBA Jam later on uh, in the years, um, didn't they go with Marv Elbert even instead of him? And that was a horrible decision. I don't think, I think that Marv was terrible. It in. Yeah, it was terrible. And what really broke Tim's heart was that he used Marv as an inspiration for the game, but he really took Marv's commentating to the next level because yeah. in an arcade game, you have to be, you have to turn the volume way up. Like there's no room for subtlety. Yeah. It's kind of like pro wrestling to some degree is like, you need yep. to, you know, play to the bleachers, make it big, make it loud. And when Marv Albert finally somehow, this is just what's crazy about NBA Jazz mythology, is that the game starts off with a Marv Albert imitation, then actual Marv Albert joins the series three or four years later. Like, that's how fast things work. Um, 
but Tim's heart was kind of broken because Marv got paid a hundred thousand dollars to be an oh. NBA Jam Extreme, and Tim, like I said, made a thousand, three thousand dollars. These are tiny sums, and on top of that, Marv Albert didn't really care to deliver an amazing performance. The game wasn't very good. It was just really sad overall. But yeah, Marv Albert ended up in NBA Jam, and I think it definitely bothered Tim, even though he knew that he used Marv Albert as inspiration. He'd taken that to another level. Oh, yeah, he's definitely, within this book and knowing what I know about Tim Cattrall, it's like he is a sad figure in the NBA Jam mythology, like you said, because like, it yeah. also feels like no one loved contributing to that game more than Tim, right? Absolutely. Like, uh, yeah. He's the guy. Years later, years later, you, so you can go online and look up Tim Kitzrow. You can get him to leave you voicemails for like 25 bucks a pop. Right. And he'll do like recorded greetings for you. And he does conventions. And he still loves NBA Jam and that whole era. And he still wants to revive. So he is the steward of NBA Jam. And he's somebody who is still just so unappreciated, which is really sad. But, I mean, that was one of the interesting things about working on the book for me was, like, I was able to tell some of these stories and share this perspective that might not otherwise get out there. Tim Kitzer might have just been the NBA Jam voice guy who you never knew that only made $3,000 for when it came to the home games. So, yeah. I want to clarify something that I found in my limited research. And, again, I had never heard this, so I don't know if it's true. But was there supposed to be an unlockable court design, too? Like a Mortal Kombat level? Because, um, you know, you can do all the characters and stuff like that. Or is that just a, you know, just a, a, a fake rumor? No, that is true. But that's actually true for one of the NBA Jam sequels. So okay. that was for NBA okay. Showtime. Yeah. So that was the one that came out in the late 90s. So this is the one where I think, yeah, this is... This was NBA on NBC. This is the one with the round ball rock theme in it. Okay. And yeah, so there was, they were actually planning a Mortal Kombat court for NBA Showtime and NBA, NBA on NBC, but I'm pretty sure the NBA nixed it and said, like, no way, right. no how, is that coming to the game? Um, <laughs> but actually, yeah, going back to NBA Jam, they actually put Mortal Kombat characters in one of the very first iterations of Tournament Edition. Because they were like, we're going crazy with the secret characters. Let's get these Mortal Kombat guys in there. Yeah. We own Mortal Kombat. We love Mortal Kombat. It's going to be a thing. And they did this, of course, without telling the NBA. Because in the early 90s, Mortal Kombat was always associated with violence. Like yeah. everybody, you know, if your mom knew what Mortal Kombat is, the, she knew what it was because it was violent. The fatalities. So the NBA, get over Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And the NBA was not happy when they found out that Midway had snuck NBA uh, or Mortal Kombat characters in the NBA Jam Tournament mm. Edition and mm. made them take them out immediately. But they were in there for a little bit. So you can find some Mortal Kombat characters in a version of NBA Jam Tournament Edition, which is pretty cool, too. That's funny. Did you think they actually cleared any of these secret characters? Like, they didn't, right? Like, they didn't go to no um, the Clintons and say, hey, can you sign here so we can get you no in this way. game? No, no way. No way. No way. Yeah. No, 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 no. Especially Acclaim, who did the home versions with the really famous secret characters. Right. I don't think they did anything. So, yeah, so Midway did the, the developers, and they started the whole idea, and then Acclaim took the ball and ran with it. Right. They did, you know, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, DJ Jazzy Jeff, Prince Charles, Will Smith, et cetera, et cetera. I'm pretty sure there was no money exchanged hands for the secret characters. Um, yeah, got to talk to George Clinton and DJ Jazzy Jeff for the book, and neither of them said that they got any money for it. It's kind of sad. It, you know, when you think about it, like it's like people sort are making a lot of money over it. Yeah. yeah. But this is also the Wild West. I mean, the early 90s is totally different from how it is now. Like, if somebody did that now, immediately within a day, it'd be online. That person would be on blast or somebody would be notified. Yep. But back then, it took a while for these secrets to come out. And it's like, oh, it's cool being in a game. I didn't get anything. Well, never mind. Yeah. But it's cool being in there. So, no, yeah, you're right. totally different place. It was a Wild West back then. 
I uh, the one thing I struggle with NBA Jam is like keeping track of which games we're talking about. You're like NBA Jam the mm-hmm. original, then there's TE, yes. but that was also the home console, and then there's these other versions. It's like that's right. the one part because then you have the different teams too. Like your actual two man teams are different. It's like oh my god, it's like mind boggling trying to keep track of it all, right? They knew they knew when they stumbled on NBA Jam that they had this huge franchise. Like when it was such a big hit, they knew that they were going to do something with it. And it's weird how it all kind of turned out that Acclaim ended up taking over the rights for Midway. So right. the home company ended up getting the rights for the arcade game by Midway and then ended up with the home license and then ended up with all the other licenses. So it's really kind of weird. Yeah, and there's honestly NBA Jam games I forget about when I do research. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, NBA Jam with Keith Van Horn on the cover. I forgot all about that. <laughs> yeah, and that was like NBA Jam 2000 for the N64. So there's all this stuff out there. So And like Juwan Howard did motion capture for one of the NBA Jam games. Had no idea about that until I learned about it for the book. But wow. yeah, there's all of this lore and so much over there. And with NBA Jam, like you could just start going and it'll just keep going forever. Like yeah. I just could just – I still learn stuff about NBA Jam all the time, which is crazy considering I spent four years working on the book and then the book's been out for a bit. And I'm still learning stuff all the time, which is just a testament to how much – love there is for NBA Jam and how much NBA Jam is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yeah. I mean, you. I follow you on Twitter and, you know, you're, re- you're tweeting about other things as well, but you're regularly throwing up some new thing it feels like you found about NBA Jam being a flyer or some other little thing yeah. that you've learned. Yeah, it's just always coming in. It's amazing. And that's what one of the great things about the internet, too, is that I can always go find new stuff like, mm-hmm. oh, here's the Japanese version of NBA Jam or here's the Japanese TV commercial of NBA Jam. Right. Oh, you know, here's some old flyers like you said that you haven't seen or here's some statistics that Tramel gave me that I can put out there. <laughs> so that's really fun, too. It's like I'm a big fan of this stuff. So as a fan, like being able to share, being the steward of this stuff and being like, oh, you get to share the stats on how many people chose the Bulls in Chicago on this night of the test. Like, I get to share that with the world? Wow. So I'm really into that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I I geek out of that stuff all the time. And there's just so much more stuff to come. So much more stuff out there. Well, one thing that I loved in in reading this, uh, your book, and then just doing a little research, was uh, that Midway developer Jake Simpson, he was digitized as the referee who appeared at tip-off to launch the ball. But... You reminded me that then he vanishes for the rest of the game. Never. He's exactly. never there. It's like, why was he ever there in the first place? I guess just to chuck the ball up. But I, I like as a kid and even into my adulthood, I was like, oh, yeah, there is no referee. Like he disappears after he throws the ball. It's weird. Absolutely. Yeah. I had no clue that that was a thing until I really noticed it many years later while writing this book. I was like, this guy goes away and doesn't come back. And I feel like I had the like the was it the Mandela effect where you see things that didn't happen or you thought something a certain way. It's like, oh, that referee was there the whole time on the sidelines. Right. Well, no, he just tips off and then he's gone. So, yeah, yeah, that that was so weird to me, too. But that's so cool about NBA Jam, another detail that just comes out of nowhere. So. I love it. Again, yeah. you did a phenomenal job with this book. You, you can honestly tell how much uh, you know effort you put in, love, time into this book because it's a really fun read. Highly recommend everyone go grab a copy. Rayon, what is the best way, the easiest way to let the listeners know how to grab this NBA Jam book? Yeah, just look up NBA Jam book on Amazon. That's the that's probably the quickest way to do it. It's out in paperback. And it is, I forget, something like 200 and something pages. Yep. Actually, it's 300 something. No, no, 266 no, no, pages right. or something. Yep, yeah. I got it right in front of me here. 
Yeah. Nice little, you know what? It's a, it's a great sized book. I wanted to say yeah. that. I know that's going to sound weird, but I love the size of this book. It's like no, any I appreciate bigger, any that. smaller, I wouldn't like it. It's just perfectly. I know. It's like sized. a little, yeah, like a pocket reference for NBA yeah. Jam. I kind of like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look it up on Amazon. There's a Kindle version, there's a paperback version. Um, if you want a signed version, just hit me up on Twitter and I'd be happy to uh, work something out with you. Yeah, I post all kinds of stuff online all the time about old video games, not just NBA Jam, but lots of old midway and arcade games. So I'm at NBA Jam Book on there. But otherwise, yeah, just Google NBA Jam Book and you should be able to find it on Amazon or on the publisher's site at bossfightbooks.com. But, you know, if nothing else, you know, if you're out there, please keep that love for NBA Jam alive. Like, the series needs to come back. And I'm really hoping that somehow all of this is going to lead to hmm. somehow somebody noticing and being like, okay, NBA Jam is really going to come back with a new game because now's the time. If this game comes back... And you're not a secret character in this damn game. <laughs> we're we're gonna riot, man! I swear to God, you deserve to be a character in this game. I, I love guess, it. I love it. I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, are you good at NBA Jam? Are you like no, just like you're no. obviously an oh. expert when it comes to the knowledge right. of the game? Could you kick love my ass? Lore. When yeah. Oh no way, no way! I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I would beat the person who doesn't know how to play NBA Jam. But right. if you know what you're doing, you will destroy me. And <laughs> like, I'm, I'm one of those people. I love video games, but I, re- and I really do try, swear. But I'm just not that good. And I've actually got a buddy who. Um, Bless his heart. He's always been very supportive. One of the first guys to buy a copy of the book. He's played me. He always plays me in NBA Jam and beats me. And he always loves to tell people that he beat the guy who wrote the book about NBA Jam Uh, in NBA Jam. Yeah, (laughs) and it's a huge feather in his cap, and it's very true. Sadly, yeah, no. If we play NBA Jam, yeah, you're probably going to win. And it won't be as much of a novelty as you think it is because I'm not very good. But I try. So maybe I'll get better. Yeah. Are you are you going to buy um the what is it one up arcade like this mm-hmm. sort of new version that you can buy of the game? Yeah, the arcade one up. Yeah, I actually yeah. pre-ordered one and it's actually it's sitting downstairs over here with me someplace and I've yet to put it together. So this weekend I'm going to assemble Ooh. it. So finally NBA Jam will be here and maybe if I do some other stuff in the future it'll be like in the background of a video or if I ever do like a an interview or something like that. But if nothing else, it'll be something amazing for me to play and hang around with in my basement. It's just like, I will be there right near NBA Jam. Like, oh, it's just just a trip. So, yeah, sometime soon it should be all set up over here. But I'm very excited about it. I really can't get enough of this stuff, man. Like, (laughs) I'm still really in NBA Jam after all this, even though I should be sick of it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, I look forward to seeing uh, some of your photos and videos, I'm sure, on your Twitter account, at NBA Jam Book, once you get that thing uh, up and running. Really appreciate you taking the time. I guess, final question, do you have plans to write another book, be it a, you know, a video game book or something else, or just taking a break right now? Definitely want to write another book. The big thing is based on the time, because, mm-hmm. I mean, I loved working on this book, but it, was, it took so long, and like I said, it was all off hours, so nights, weekends, mornings, playing hooky from work. Like all kinds of, you know, trying to get space and time wherever I could, um, along with all the life stuff that happened. So it was really tough, but I definitely want to keep going. I definitely want to do another book. Um, I was thinking about starting it probably next January, and I want to do something pretty different. I'm not entirely sure what it's going to be yet. I've got a few different ideas, but someday I'm going to write another video game book, that's for sure. Don't know if it's going to be the next one. Um, next one will probably be something, yeah, completely different, but I'm, this is just the start. I have waited a long time to get to this point, and I am ready to go with many, many more books. Oh, that's awesome, man. All right, well, best of luck. Guys, we got some other fun podcasts lined up for this week. On Tuesday, we're going to talk to Blake Murphy about the top 10 moments in Canadian basketball history. Yes, Canada Day is right around the corner. Later this week, we're going to talk to the Internet's hero. 
Shea Serrano is going to come on. I'm going to test his Spurs knowledge on who wants some trivia. So that should be fun. Guys, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen and download the No Dunks podcast. Clipper Bros. You heard it here first. Have a great time. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Embrace the day, people.